What's going on, guys, and welcome back to another Against All Odds podcast. In today's episode, it's just me. I'm just going to sit down. I did a little poll on Instagram stories and just asked you guys to submit some questions. So I got about 20 to 25 questions right here on my phone. I'm going to read through them and just answer them uh, myself. So unfortunately, don't have a guest. We're actually going to be in Texas all of this week. Uh, but the next podcast after this will have my first teammate on the podcast and do the typical talking to them about their story, talking to them about their career, how they got to the pro level and uh, all that, all that good stuff. So anyway, welcome to the podcast and uh, let's roll the intro. All right. So we'll just jump straight into the questions. Uh, first one we got is from Leo Shrimpton and Leo asks, how did you deal with not achieving your five-year MLS goal that you set in 2015, 2016? Um, I mean, I'm guessing this is referring to one of my older videos when I was playing for either the Orange County Blues or when I was over in Germany, and I probably laid out like my five-year plan, which is crazy to think about that I'm already coming up on that five-year plan, but I probably had uh, the MLS as one of my, not my ultimate goals, but one of my higher-up goals on that goal pyramid list. And um, to be honest, like, I, it's, it's like no big deal. Like, obviously you want to be in the MLS. Obviously, you know, it's, it's kind of sucks that I've just been in the USL this whole time, but you should set goals where you're not going to achieve, you know, about a third of them. People say that like the, the best way to, to set goals is that between like 25% to like 30% of the goals you set should be reach goals, should be goals that are very hard to obtain. If you're achieving every single goal that you set out, it means you're not like dreaming big enough. You don't have enough big goals and you probably aren't reaching your full potential. And on the flip side, if you're setting goals and you're only achieving like half of them or less than half of them, you might be setting two ambitious goals and you might need to rein it back a little bit and break it down into smaller steps and achieve smaller goals and and so it's not discouraging so that's like the sweet spot from when like the the strength coach the mental strength coaches and the psychologists the sports psychologists i've talked to it's pretty much been like a quarter to a third of the goals you just should not achieve so how do i feel i mean you're not going to feel good about it but at the same time i throughout my career have probably achieved about 75% of the goals and of everything that I, I set out to um, achieve. So I think I have a pretty good ratio. Next question from Josh Josh 90 and he asks, the importance of self-belief as a young player. Uh, I think not even just as a young player, but I think at any age. I mean, you, you'd be so surprised how many professional level soccer players I, would, I don't want to say don't have self-belief, but struggle with self-belief, struggle with confidence. And I mean, like, even for me, I mean, there's been multiple times in my career where I've really struggled about just confidence, confidence on the field, confidence when that ball is being played out to you. And I mean, you even watch like the all or nothing documentaries about from Tottenham or from on Sunderland or wherever. And you'll hear like little tidbits from players talking to sports psychologists or, or just like talking in general or and kind of opening up and saying like, yeah, I just, you know, I'm not feeling confident. Like I, I don't believe like I'm good enough to be here at times. There was this one really like intimate moment with a Sunderland player who pretty much said that, like he's afraid to fail and he doesn't really, he struggles with confidence in himself. And this is a player who played at the top division, you know, the first division over in England and had played in like the first division Netherlands. And it's just crazy that like everybody struggles with a little bit of that. And it's crazy too, to see when you do have that confidence how you're just a completely different player than when you don't have confidence. And I talk about this with even my teammates all the time. Me and Callum would just talk about how like confidence changes you. If you have confidence, you can go out there and you're going to play fine. And it, it, there's no quick fix. Like there's nothing I can say that like, this is how you get confidence tomorrow. It's more of like a long-term thing. Confidence comes from a ton, a ton of quality training so that you know, look, I've hit this cross a hundred times. I can hit it right now. It comes from a ton of experience and, and experience playing at higher and higher levels because then you have more belief in yourself. You know, if, like for me, I've played in the USL now for four or five seasons. So I have more belief in myself come that first game where I'm like, yeah, I can do this because I've done this for four or five years now. And then it also comes along with, uh, it comes from mental like strength and, and self-talk. And I think that makes a smaller portion of it. But I think that setting goals and I think that, 
I think that like telling yourself constantly, like you're good enough to be here, be confident, show positive and confident body language and telling yourself, affirming those things in your mind and, and, and positive self-talk really does help as well. So I think it's a combination of those three things and confidence just in general is just so important. So I think it's important self-belief for young players, old players, everybody. Uh, next we got Bruno Almeida dot SA and he asks, is ice bath good for recovery? Um, so it's very, very tough with ice baths because a lot of the recent evidence and science coming out about, uh, ice baths and, and just like the, uh, cold water immersion is basically saying that it's in the short term, it can lower your perceived, uh, perceived levels of, of soreness. So basically it helps with that, like feeling of how heavy and sore your legs are in the short term, but it does reduce some of that inflammation. And sometimes reducing some of that inflammation is good if you have too much, but that can also kind of slow down the recovery process. And it does definitely slow down your muscle protein synthesis, which is like how fast and, and how much your muscles grow from training. And so it can reduce in the long term how well you recover. So my answer when in my philosophy when it comes to ice baths is that I will only do an ice bath if like it's an, a very crucial, important game tomorrow and my legs are so sore and I'm okay with that short-term fix or like I'm playing in the championship game and I'm sore and inflamed and my ankles are hurting 100%. I'm going to ice and get down that inflammation because I'm just worried about that short-term uh, short game. I'm just worried about tomorrow playing in that game. But like... I try not to ice and I try not to do ice baths unless I have to because I'm really want to stay healthy in the long term. Now, I do think that like contrast baths are good because going into from hot to cold to hot to cold, it kind of brings in more blood flow to those areas. So I think that's a good alternative. And I think that's something that a lot of people should look into. Um, but yeah, ice baths, it's, it's very controversial right now. And I will end it with just saying like, do what, makes you happy do what you think you know is helping you because the science is coming out it changes so much and i mean five years ago it was all about ice baths ice it get rid of the inflammation so my advice is try it if you love it and you really think it helps go for it but you know if you hate it and you don't think it helps and, and kind of like for me i hate ice baths i really i feel a little bit better but i don't see any crazy noticeable changes with soreness so i choose not to do it unless i really really have to uh, the next question is from Five Vitale, and he asks, thoughts on Ben Patrick and his knees over toes training philosophy. If you guys don't know that uh, who that is, that's uh, knees over toe guy on Instagram, and he's all about promoting these unconventional exercises where your knees go drastically far over your toes, whether that's like a sissy squat or a lunge that you're really protruding your knee over your toes. They look pretty intimidating and they look pretty scary especially if you've ever struggled with knee pain because they put your knees in pretty compromised positions but the whole idea behind it is to get your knee in those areas and strengthen that up and strengthen the muscles that really um support your knee when your knee does go over your toes like the vastus medialis obliquus like this one the teardrop muscle right on the side of your quad and i mean I would love to see more science come out about it and some research studies and, and see more about it. But I mean, he makes a pretty compelling case and it, it seems like it's kind of taken over the, the social media and the, the physio and like physical therapy world by storm. And everybody I've talked to physical therapists, physios, other athletes, uh, other people that like strength and conditioning coaches have kind of been on his side and say like, yeah, I mean, I see where he's coming from. I think, knees over toes is fine when it's done in the right way. So, um, and I, even for me, I've implemented some of his exercises into my routine and I've, I've noticed, uh, that, you know, my, even my patellar tendonitis is kind of not gone away, but it's, it's been reduced a lot. So I think it's good. And I think he has, you know, a lot of credibility to his name. So if you don't know who that is, go check him out and look at his exercises. But again, I would love to see more research studies in science about that. And just to see, you know, I, I just think more research studies is always good. Bless you, Mimi. <laughs> Mimi just sneezed in the background. Uh, next question is from Robbie Cleary. And he asks, 
In your opinion, what separates an average pro from a top flight pro? That's a great question. Um, I think it's very hard to say what separates that because it, it differs so much from person to person. If I'm going to be completely vague and just answer this question and be very, very uh, general about it, I think decision-making and speed of play are the main things. I think that as you go higher and higher up, the players, you know, they're not, they might be a little bit more athletic in general. They might be a little bit faster. They might be a little bit more technical or sometimes a lot more technical. But if you're comparing like a top flight pro to like the second division or that, like that kind of range, it, it, I think that the main decisions or the main thing that separates them are the decisions they make on the field. And the top flight pro is just going to make uh 10% more right decisions. And I think their passing completion ratio is going to be a little bit better. And I think their one-on-one success rate going dribbling and taking on defenders is going to be a little bit better. And so I think that they're just a little bit more clinical. They're a little bit more sharp. They're a little bit more technical. It's just all those areas is just a little bit better. And it's hard because it's like, you know, I've, I've had, I have the GPS stats and I can, I can see, you know, my speeds compared to other pros and you can see, and you can, and I've played against players who've played in the MLS and played against players who played in Bundesliga. And I've played against players that played in the premier league and in La Liga. I've played against players that have played and had good careers in all the top flights. And I think it's just that little bit of being a little bit more technical, a little bit about everything. But, you know, I think there could be one player that's playing in the second division that could be so athletic and he would still be athletic as he goes up to the top flight team but maybe he's just missing another component of his game or there's players in the second division that might be incredibly technical but maybe they're just missing that like decision making or speed of play process and their decisions that they make just aren't good enough so there's just so many things but i think if you really are being general i would i would say speed of play and decision making um, we'll move on. So next question is from Stephen M. Rose and Stephen asks, I feel like I always pick a question from Stephen. He always has good questions. Um, but he asks, when do you know when to finally make the push from a semi-pro USL league two team to the pro level? And I, I think that you never know. I think that you, you're never going to be like, yep, this is the time, you know? And I think that's fine. I think that it should be more about like, you should always be trying to make the push from the USL League Two level to the uh, USL League One level or USL Championship level, I think that there's never like even if you don't have a crazy successful season in the USL League Two, I think that there's nothing wrong with still trying to attend some combines, open trials, sending out some emails with your highlights, and and just seeing if you can get a trial at the USL League One USL Championship level. I mean, you don't have to be the best player, you know and be like the top one in the league in order to get a trial. I think a lot of times it boils down to, do they need your position? You know, are they will, are they kind of like really limited at that position? They just want to bring you in. You never know. And obviously the better you do in the USL league too, the more likely you're going to get an opportunity at the pro level. But I think just because like you don't have an amazing, amazing season, you shouldn't try for it. You know, I think even for me in the USL, for the last, you know, four years in the USL, I haven't been like USL first team all league. I haven't had crazy stats, um, but I'm still pushing to try to play at the next level and talking to my agent about opportunities at the MLS. And my agent's been sending out, you know, um, my highlight video and CV and talking to MLS coaches on my behalf to even try to get me in for a trial or something. So I think that's the answer. It's like, just try and see what happens. You don't have to wait until you feel like you're 100% ready. Just try. And what's the worst gonna, that's going to happen? The worst that's going to happen is you just have to play another year at the USL League 2. Or for me, play another year at the USL. So I don't think that you ever really fully know. And I don't think you really need to know. You just give it a go and see what happens. Uh, next question is from Sindhuvaras... I'm going to butcher this name. Sindhuvaranasi. Uh, it looks... Indian. Uh, and he asks, do you think that you weren't able to make your club a team in high school because of coaches being biased? So if you guys don't know, um, a little bit about my backstory as a player, when I was in high school up until my senior year, the very end of my junior year, I was on the B team of my local club team. And, And to my credit, like that team, that club team was like first, second, 
in the state every single year. So it was the best club team in the state of Oregon. And this is back when we didn't have any academy teams there. We didn't have any ECNL teams. It was just club soccer. And that team was the best in the state of Oregon. So um, I was still on the B team and we were still like, we would always still go to state, be like in the top league. Uh, but it was, it was still the B team. And I was very frustrated because I was the best. I scored the most goals on the B team. I was the captain of the B team. And whenever I felt like I would get an opportunity to play with the A team, like as, to guest play with them for a tournament, I would score. I would do well. Everybody on the team and the players would be asking me, like, why aren't you playing for us? Why are you on the B team? Like, is it a commitment issue? Like, what's going on? And I just said, like, no, I don't make the team. The coach doesn't want me on the team. So I don't know if it's biased against me. But there's sometimes where, as a coach, you just don't rate an, a player. You just don't find him like a good fit for your team. And that's just how it's going to be at every single level, at every single team you go to. Coaches are not robots that have a statistical analysis of which player, or which right back's the best right back. It's really sometimes, especially as you go higher and higher up and the competition between the first, second, and third string gets closer and closer, a lot of times coaches do have favorite players that they just rate. They like their style of play. And some players, they just don't really like their style of play. So I think maybe back in high school, I don't think it was necessarily any bias or anger or hate towards me. I just think he probably didn't rate me as a player. He really didn't think I was a good fit. And it, it was frustrating. And I, you know, I kind of got the short end of the stick there. Um, and it's funny because when a new coach came in, uh, Paul Meehan, when Paul Meehan came in, he, I guess, played with him one weekend. He loved how I played. He moved me up immediately to the A team. And then within like a month or two, I was like the leading scorer and the captain of the A team. So it just shows like once you have a coach that believes in you and, and really likes how you play, you can find so much success. And you see it all the time. I mean, look at Gareth Bale when he was at Real Madrid. He just was Zidane. I mean, they just didn't rate him as a player. They didn't want to put him on the field. And was he the best winger on the team? I mean, you have to watch every single day at training. We don't get to see that. But, you know, I think that it, there's always going to be a little bit of politics that plays in. And I think the best thing you can do is instead of getting upset with that, instead of like, oh, politics, you know, screw this, blah, 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 and just accept that it's part of it and just work on yourself to become a better player. And then if you can, try to find a new coach or new setup if it's uh, reasonable to go to a new place where you're going to be more appreciated. Um, and I think that's my best advice when it comes to that. And I, even going back to my 16-year-old, 17-year-old self, um, I think especially coming maybe a, a year or two on that B team, if I still wasn't getting success, I would have said, hey, stop staying at West, stop playing at Westside now. Go and play against the rivals. Go, go move. Go to FC Portland and, and be on the second best team in state, you know? I, th I think that would have been my advice. Find a coach that really appreciates you. And it ended up working out for me, but I got a little lucky with that coaching change at the end. Um, next question is from the same guy, Sindhu Varanasi. I think I said that a little bit better this time. But he says, uh, do you know, do any of your youth coaches know that you're pro? Uh, yes. I think every single one of my youth coaches knows that I'm a pro. And I think, I'm not saying that as like a brag, but I know this because I've reached out to them and talked to them. Um, because it, I'm so big on connections and, 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 you know, the best way to get teams and opportunities at the pro level is to reach out through your network of coaches and players and old teammates dating all the way back until you were a kid, because you just never know what friend or old coach or old teammate is going to be on a team or know an agent or whoever that's going to set you up with your next pro contract. And I'll give you a huge, huge example of this but when i was in college my senior year i knew that i wanted to drop out and play professional soccer so i kind of did that same exact thing that i just said i reached out to everybody i reached out to old teammates that i knew were playing college playing usl league two playing pro and just said hey what's up like i, I would you, I, i'm <laughs> wow i struggled there but i was like hey what's up i'm trying to play uh, at the pro level, like, do you have any advice? How did you get there? What helped you? Do you have any agents you could recommend me? And just kind of like caught back up with them. And most times, like it led to a dead end. And like I said, yeah, you know, they gave me a little bit of advice, but nothing really crazy. But then when I reached back out to one of my old youth coaches that I had in one of my old private one-on-one -on -one trainers that I had, Matt Atencio, who he coached me when I was like 12, 
I just reached back out to him. He said, yeah, like I'm in the Bay Area. I'll come out and watch some games. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I would love to help you. And, you know, I don't have much connections, but, you know, I'll come out to a game and we can meet up and talk and hang out. He came out to some of my college games, came out and we stayed in contact. And then as I progressed and, and I finally made the plunge and dropped out, he put me in contact with one of his close friends that was German, Marcus Battelt. And Marcus was the person who brought me over to Germany and got me all the trials, got me fully situated there. Literally, he's the one who made my time in Germany happen. So that connection stemmed from me staying in contact to one of my coaches I had when I was 12. So um, that's a very long-winded answer to answer if my old coaches know that I'm a pro, but the answer is yes, but because I was reaching out to them in search of contacts, in search of agents, in search of opportunities to play professionally. And that's my advice. And I think the thing that you can take away from that is for you guys is to stay in contact with your old teammates. It doesn't have to be every every week you're messaging your, your U11 teammates, but it's just crazy, especially now with social media. I mean, even in off season, I was training with Chase Boone and, and Rubio Rubin and Christo Michelson, who were all my brother's teammates at Westside Metro. So, and now I'm training with them and know them and they have a plethora, plethora of connections into the pro world. So you really just, you guys are going to be surprised in 10 years, how many players in your uh, soccer bubble end up either playing pro or playing at a high level or coaching at a high level, and then that you can use in order for connections to the next level. So stay in contact and be nice to everybody because you never know who's going to who's going to give you or help you get that first contract. All right, next question is from MN4. And they ask, what were your other college options? So I the main ones that I fully whittled down to, the ones that I had to decide between was a scholarship offer at UC Davis, not a full one, but a scholarship offer at UC Davis, a rookie or a a roster spot at Oregon State, and a scholarship offer at Gonzaga. So those, that's what I was uh, debating in between. And honestly, I think that Oregon State had the, uh, the best facilities and it had like the most professional setup, but I just got a good vibe on my official visits to the schools. I got a good vibe from UC Davis. I, I liked how the coaches were kind of lighthearted and they were t- messing around with me. I got a very good vibe from the players and I just kind of like liked the uh, warmer weather down in California. So I just went with my gut, you know, even though it wasn't even the highest ranked school, but I went with them. And I also a big reason too was that they were the first D1 team that started actively recruiting me. Oregon State and Gonzaga and some of the other ones came later. And I just felt like, you know what, your first offer is usually your best offer. The person that wants you first is usually the most uh, passionate about uh, passionate about you. So I went with them and I think it was a great, a great decision. Um, uh, and, I, and that's hard to say too, because I don't know how well it could have been if I went to Oregon State or Gonzaga, but I think that uh, I was very happy with my choice at UC Davis. But I also had schools at the D2 level, schools at the D3 level, NAIA level, and even JUCO level and like community college level that I was reaching out to just as backup plans. Like I had, uh, it's going to be hard for me to remember, but I had like uh, UCSD as a backup plan. They were D2. I had UC Santa Cruz as a D3 backup plan that wanted me. I had uh, a couple local ones like Chemeketa College, which is a JUCO that wanted me that I had. And then I had like uh, Willamette or something. I forgot, but it was like a couple NAI schools that also wanted me. So I reached out to schools from my reach Stanford school all the way down to the easy local JUCO that I knew I could get into and I knew I could play for. And my thing was like, I'm just going to go for the highest level I can. And that ended up being the highest level of D1. And it's kind of funny going bringing this full circle. If we talk about setting goals, that's almost exactly what happened. I re, I had probably 30 schools on my list and 25% of the schools, you know, the top 25% where there's no way I'm getting in. It was like Stanford, UCLA that I couldn't even get into academically and the 
players that were recruiting were like U.S. Youth National Team. So I had those 25% of schools that I was like, those are my reach. If it happens, amazing, but I'm not expecting anything from it. I had like 50% of the schools that were like top D2 schools and mid D1 schools that I thought could be a really good fit. And then I had another, you know, the bottom 25%, which was like low D2, D3, and NAIA, and even junior college schools. So I really just, I did that same thing I'm talking about with the goals of like easy to reach. All right, next question is from Cameron Vaughn. And he asks, after reading Relentless by Tim Grover, would you say that you are an absolute cleaner? Uh, if you guys haven't read Relentless by Tim Grover, first you should. And then second, a cleaner refers to somebody who's like the most intense competitor. Like they are just like the the best in whatever the field they do in it. And not in terms of skill, but of like mind, mind um, like mental strength and really about like, uh, it's really hard to explain. It, I, you really have to read the book to understand fully what a cleaner is. And, and yeah, Kobe Bryant. That, thank you, Mimi. Mimi just shouted out. But it's Kobe. It's Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant's the absolute cleaner for me. Michael Jordan, absolute cleaner for me. Um, I don't think I'm an absolute cleaner. I think that I would love to be, but I know I'm just not as ruthless and cutthroat as Kobe and Michael Jordan are. And I mean, I think that they are literally like the one in a billion that are, that are just absolute cleaners. So I, I would like to think I'm a cleaner, but I don't know. Like, I, I really just don't know. I, I mean, I relate so much to that book and that book literally had stuff in writing and said stuff that I had never read before, but I've been feeling my whole life and it just spoke to me on another level. And I absolutely just, I just loved it. But I don't think that I'm an absolute cleaner on the same level as Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan. I think that would be, I think that's unrealistic. If I was, I'd be, you know, the top. Uh, but it's funny because even the book, it's like, like it's not all about how good you are because you can be one of the best in the in the NBA or the playing at the highest level, top five in the in the in the nation or in the world, but you still might not be a cleaner. It really comes down to your that mental side of the game and like just the competitiveness in you. So, yeah, I wish I was an absolute cleaner. I wish I was like Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, but honestly, they're just they're goats. They're they're goats. Uh, Next question is from Andrew Meyerson, and he asks, could you take us through a full day of eating when you were in high school and college? Honestly, it looks exactly the same as it does now. There's very, very little difference to how I ate in high school and how I ate in college and how I eat now. It, it was pretty much all the same. I've always been a very healthy um, eater. And I mean, with my cheat meals, like ice cream or chocolate chip cookies or whatever at night, uh, but I've always had the same thing. I mean, all, ever since high school, I was eating eggs in the morning with bananas and oranges, no cup of coffee at back then, but I was, uh, eating the same like Greek yogurt, tons of fruit, veggies, um, lots of like lean meats and, and animal products that were healthy. And then just same thing in college. I mean, it was chicken breast. I mean, my very typical day in the mornings of high school, college, and now is eggs in the morning with fruit. Lunch is like uh, like a t turkey sandwich or something uh, with fruit and probably some veggies and then probably some crackers or pretzels or chips or something. Uh, and then my snacks were ranges every day from like rice cakes to apples to unhealthy stuff like chips or Pringles. And then dinner is chicken breast, rice and veggies or, you know, something along those lines. And then dinner or dessert is a bowl of chocolate ice cream or chocolate chip cookies. Nothing really has changed since then. So what you see now is the same as it's been for the last 20, yeah, 20 years pretty much. Uh, next question is from Barak, Barak Mateo. And he asks, how many times have you and Mimi watched The Office? Mimi, do you want to answer that one? Mimi, Mimi says 50, 50 full times through. And I'd say, I'd, I think that's pretty, pretty accurate, but we don't sit there and like, it's always on the background. Like we'll have it playing in the background as we work, as we play games like Scrabble, as we eat dinner and eat lunch. So we're home a lot because like 
I'm a professional soccer player and I only have to work in the mornings. Then I come back and then I just kind of like edit YouTube videos and do that stuff. Mimi works from home as like a remote interior designer. She was doing school back then as well. So we just have always just had it constantly playing in the background. Um, so yeah, probably about 50 times through. Okay. Next two questions are from Andrew Meyerson. Wait, was the last one from Andrew Meyerson? Oh, no. The one before that was, I've got three questions from Andrew Meyerson. All right, this one is top productivity tip for student athletes. I think it's, oh, Mimi wants to answer again. I let her into the podcast and now she's, now she's Caesar window. Yeah, that would be mine. My, Mimi said, because I know you, it's going to be hard to hear, but she says, just don't procrastinate on anything. And that's a hundred percent. I mean, don't procrastinate. And I think batch like I, and what I mean by that is like, when you study, you study, when you do homework, you home, you do homework. You don't do like, like the half-assed studying. And I'll give you an example of like in finals week of college, I was an applied mathematics major and in finals week, I felt still felt like I had all the time in the world. I, I never was really stressed. And I, and I did, and what I did is because I would batch like three hours at a time, like this from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m., I'm just gonna study. Like I'm gonna throw my phone on the couch, I'm going to turn off everything, and I'm just going to study, power it out. And then after that, I'm going to take a break. I'm gonna go train or I'm gonna go work out. Like I was doing a training session and a workout during all through finals week. I never needed to take a week off of my training or workouts because I felt like I just could batch my time around everything and I felt like that helped me stay more disciplined um, and then I would come back and then I would batch, you know, okay, I'm going to have lunch with a friend now. And then I'll have another batch of three hours where I just study my ass off. And then I'll take an hour long break where I watch like some TV. And then I'm going to batch another four hours where I study my ass off again. And doing that, it like almost you get a reward and you know, like I just make it to 11, power this out to 11, and then you can train. And on the flip side, I've seen a lot of my teammates or a lot of my students or even be me sometimes they go to the they, they go they go to the library and they stay there all day but the entire 12 hours they're there they're kind of half talking with friends they're not like fully involved they're kind of like walking around they're getting distracted they're on their phone a little bit so out of the 12 hours they're there in the library they might only actually get 5 6 hours of actual studying time true in the zone studying time and you, and I feel like if you just batch it, so you get three hours in the zone with no distractions, you save so much more time. And I've always been like that, like batch it, whether I'm editing, whether I'm filming a podcast, whether whatever, I've always been like, power it out, power it out now. Don't procrastinate it and don't ever multitask. If you multitask, it's not a good thing. And I know it's funny how I said, I just have the office in the background the entire time, but it's literally just background noise. I'm not like, I, we don't watch it. It's just so that you don't sit here in a quiet apartment. And I think that's the best tip I, I can possibly have for you guys. Um, same person, Andrew Meyerson asks, any advice on what to do if you are the number two on your team? So you're not in the starting 11. Um, I think it's all about like working on your own game. I mean, I think that it comes down to that coach thinks that other player is better than you. So I think the first thing you should do is go sit down and talk to your coach at either after training or sit down with him. I mean, if you're a pro, you go to his office or if you're in college, go to their office and knock on the door and just be like, Hey coach. Um, I obviously am not starting. I really want to be a starter and I just want to know why the other player is, is starting over me and not in like a, um, a defensive way or like a confrontation confrontational way, but as like, I want to learn what I need to improve on in order to be a starter in your eyes. I want to know what I need to do differently in order to play. I mean, I just want to be on the field and obviously they're doing something that's better than me. And I just really want to improve. And if you take that approach and you're not confronting the coach about it and be like, yo, like I'm better than him. Why am I not playing? The coach is going to go, no, I don't think you are. And then you're going to get nowhere. But if you sit down and say, and you come from the point of, I want to improve, what do I need to improve on in order to be a starter in your eyes? They'll be like, look, like you need to work on your first touch or you need to work on your finishing. You get six opportunities a game as a striker and you're only putting away like 
one, maybe out of those. If you have six one-on-one with the keepers, you should be putting away three of those, you know, or whatever the, whatever they say, but take what they say to heart and then ask them, okay, I, I need to work on my first touch or my distribution out of the back and building out of the back is not good enough. How should I work on that? What should I do? And hopefully they'll give you drills or they'll give you like in training, they'll say like, look, I think you just kick it too long. You just get, you panic sometimes and you just boot it down the field. I want to see you working on confidently building out of the back on the ground. So then you know what you need to do and then you know drills or you know in training what you should focus on in order to improve. And hopefully if you work extra on that, you can show your coach that I'm improving in the areas that we talked about. And hopefully, whether a couple months down the line, you go in up to his office again and be like, look, you know, my problem was that you said that I'm not starting because I only get one or two crosses off in a game. I'm getting five, six crosses off every single time we scrimmage and we train. And I feel like I'm getting the most crosses off of any fullback. And if you truly are, the coach is like, you're right. I mean, uh, and then you just kind of whittle down his reasons why you're not starting until you do become the starter. So you need to identify why you aren't starting from the coach's perspective and they need to work on that and hopefully make that a point where now it's one of your strengths and it's not lo- no longer holding you back. And then kind of how I go back to my old self of 17, if you know you feel like you are outperforming the starter in every way possible over and over again and you're still not getting the opportunity like season after season, sometimes again, that coach is just not gonna rate you as a player and you need to go find a setup where you're appreciated. So leave and find a new team where you get play, where you can play and you get minutes. Um, another question from Andrew Meyerson. Andrew, you've been having some great questions, so thank you. Uh, Mimi, <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on dating slash girls in regards to pursuing your development as a player? Uh, I say 100%, it's perfectly fine if you're dating the right girl and if your priorities are right um because it can be a huge distraction if you let it be a huge distraction or if the girl is a huge distraction or a guy is a huge distraction you need to be able to have your prior priorities so set in your mind that it can't be a distraction at all and it's just like anything else that 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 you get to enjoy time with your girlfriend or boyfriend um during the time that you set aside for that. You know, it's like once you get your training and your workouts and your schoolwork done, same thing. Now you're gonna, should have multiple hours of free time. Do whatever you want in your free time. Um, and I'll give you a firsthand example of that, of like, of, of girls and even with Mimi. It's like when I was dating her, I made it very, very clear that, like we joke about it, but I said when we first started dating, I said soccer comes first. Like that's what's the most important thing to me right now. This is before we were about to get married or engaged or been dating for seven years, but I said soccer comes first. And so if I have training or I have even a workout that I want to do by myself or rehab or whatever that I'm, I need to do that. I'm going to do that. And that's going to come, that's going to be my priority over you. And then as we continue to date, even after a year or two years of dating, I said, look, I'm going to drop out and I'm going to go wherever soccer takes me professionally. And you can be with me, you can be my girlfriend or, or not. And it doesn't, it's not going to change what I want to do and what I'm going to go for. Um, and so if you lay that out and you lay those priorities and you have that so clearly defined in your mind, I think it's very hard for a girl to become a distraction. And if she does, then it's just a, it's just a sign that it's not the right girl. They should be there supporting you and helping you just like you should be supporting them with anything they want to do in their life. Mimi wants a little talking point. Yeah, maybe. I look, I look forward to Wednesday so much. It was like, it was so funny to my friends. Yeah, so me, I don't know if you guys could hear this. This, these mics are pretty, pretty quiet. But she said that for the first year that we were dating, we only hung out on Wednesday nights. And she said that she looked forward to Wednesday nights, and her friends thought it was funny because it's like a normal student in college. They hang out with their girlfriend pretty much any night. But I would look. I was like, look, um, I got Wednesday free. You can come over Wednesday and it worked. And I felt like we had a great relationship. It was a, a good amount of time and she could date other people on the weekends and she was good. But no, you, but I mean, you just have to have what's important to you and your priorities straight and it, it should be fine. 
Uh, next question is from Carson2105, and he asks, how long do you stay before or after training? So I like to get before training like 15 minutes, and I mean, that's pretty standard, uh, but I always like to be out there and actually passing or playing two-touch or rondos. That's my thing. Like if I'm really sore and tired, I'll just pass. Um, if there's not that many people out there, I'll play two-touch, um, the juggling game, and then if we do get a good group of like, you know, people are warmed up, then I'll play rondos. So that's like what goes through my head. And then in preseason, it's I barely ever stay after training just because with double days and the amount of games, it's just crazy. I mean, this week, we're about to leave for Texas tomorrow, and we have three games in four days against Houston Dynamo, against North Texas Soccer Club, and then against FC Dallas. So I mean, staying after training today, I think would have not been smart, but in season, typically I'll, I'll stay after almost every single training, except for the training, maybe before the game, depending on how my body feels. But even then at least 15 minutes working on crossing, working on long balls and working on the, that little extra thing that I want to work on, whether that's one of you ones or something. So not long, um, but just enough where it's like that adds up. I mean, 15 minutes before, 15 minutes after, that's an extra 30 minutes of training every single day. Uh, next question is from Nevlin Harper. And, and Nevlin asks, is the skill gap between D1, D2, D3 large? Or is it more fluid where D2, D3 could be better than D1? I definitely think it's fluid. I think that as you go down to the bottom division one teams, you're really overlapping with the top division two teams. And I think even the best division two team could rival and could have some very good competition against mid to even top D one teams. So I think that the number, whether, you know, the, 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 the league that you play in D one, D two, D three, it's, I, I think it is true that the, if you look at a very general basis, division one teams are usually better than D2 teams. D2 teams are usually better than D3 teams. NAIA is in a, in a crazy league of its own because you could have very, very class NAIA teams with tons of foreign talent that could even rival D1 teams, or you could have very poorly run NAIA teams that are just very poorly run. So it's very, there's tons of overlap. So my advice is to try to find a setup that feels professional go and visit some the d1 schools d2 d3 and don't just pick a d1 school because it's a d1 school you have to find some place that is going to be a right fit for you and that you feel it's going to be a good match i mean you really want to find a good place and i think that the most important thing is winning i mean so many pros come from d2 like top d2 teams top naia teams even d3 teams a lot of pros come from the schools that are winning so it's very important that you get into a winning setup I think the next question is from Matthias Buchner. I trained with Matthias in uh, St. Louis a long time ago. Uh, but he asks as a footballer, do you invest in any stocks or watch the market on a daily basis? Uh, yes. I'm very, very, very big into the stock market and I'm very, very, very big into just, um, finances in general and making, having your money, make more money and other sources of income. I mean, YouTube and Become Elite is literally a business that I built because I not only was I bored of just training in the morning and I had so much free time, but also because I knew that I wasn't going to be playing in the top divisions and going to be able to retire. I started Become Elite as a, with a love for creating videos and a love for coaching and a love for just documenting my life and everything, but also as a, as a revenue stream. I wanted to make more money, be more successful this podcast. I love doing podcasts, but this podcast is also another revenue stream with sponsors. And if you're watching this on YouTube, the ads that come up. So I'm, I think that, you know, that finances play a very, very big part of my life. And lately the last, like, I mean, since I pretty much started playing professionally, I've been trying to live off of just my soccer contract. So just live within my means of whatever I get paid to play and then everything I make on the side on, of with Become Elite, which in the last four years has been more than I've been making on soccer, but I try to put all of that stuff from Become Elite straight into investment accounts and just saving up to uh, for the future, whether that's for a facility, whether that's for retiring early or just being financially independent. I just pump money into the markets and I pump money into very blue chip companies that 
are going to be around forever. Apple, Amazon, big companies like that, nothing crazy, but it's been going pretty well, but I definitely, definitely am, am big on the, in the stock market and big on making, having your money or I'm big on creating income streams and multiple income streams. And then I'm big on having those income streams and using that money that's generated to make more money in the markets or, or somewhere else. Um, yeah. If, and if you're interested in, in the stock market, there's so many amazing YouTube channels that you can learn from. Uh, next question is from Ashley Webb. And she asks, if you had, if you absolutely had to wear different boots for a game, which ones would you wear? <laughs> That's a good question. So I haven't worn anything other than Mercurials. I think the last, I wore the Adidas like X, like 11.1s or I can't even remember what they were, but I wore those in Germany. Uh, so that was like 2015. Uh, I, I would probably have to go with just the new version of the Mercurials. Maybe the Phantoms, but I haven't really tried those on lately. I've tried them on like two years ago and I thought they were okay. But yeah, I mean, uh, if uh, hopefully I'll be wearing vapors for a long time, and hopefully my my uh, my plug halts boots keeps on supplying them to me. But if not, I might have to switch to the new version of the of the vapors. Um, the next question is from Good Old Boy Two, and Good Old Boy Two asks, "How do you keep your life organized?" Uh, I am the most forgetful and and unorganized mentally person you will probably ever meet. Mimi gets mad at me on a daily basis for forgetting to do things. And if it's in my head and it's not written down somewhere, I will a hundred percent forget it. So Mimi says, if it's not important to you, that's, that's kind of true. Uh, she says, I prioritize information in my head, which is true, but even soccer. I mean, I mean, I need to write stuff down. I need to have a calendar. I need, I, I cannot have stuff in my head or else it gets so jumbled up. So what I do, and I think this is my favorite tip that I can give you for keeping your life organized is to have a, a whiteboard. Go to Office Depot or get one on Amazon, a big whiteboard. Mine's like three feet big. And I have like a little calendar section in the top left corner where I can just wipe off, you know, Monday, Tuesday, all the way through Sunday. I write down my training times. I write down to not forget to do the little Titan app to weigh in and the COVID test. I write down appointments I have with whoever. I write down Zoom call times. I write down travel days and game days and what times I need to show up. So it's all there. So then if I, when I wake up, I look at the day and I'm like, oh yeah, I got that Zoom call. Oh yeah, I got to make sure to do the Titan thing. It's all there listed for me, boom. And I have two weeks, it's always two weeks. And then once I finish the week, I bring it back down, I erase everything and I write the, set, the next week. And I just ha always have two weeks ahead of me all planned out. And then I write down my ideas on that whiteboard. I write down little to-do things. I write down, oh, you should be paid by this sponsor or send this invoice in to this person. It needs to be written down for me. And that whiteboard is huge, huge for me. So invest in that if, if you're like that. You're, you're the same as me. Next question from Shady Lees. And Shady asks, what is more enjoyable to you, playing pro football or making cool videos on social media? 100% playing pro football. I mean, the videos are, are, I love it. I absolutely love making YouTube videos. I absolutely love documenting my life. I absolutely love making podcasts in Two Minute Tuesdays. Um, and it's definitely a passion, but there's I, nothing beats football. I mean, nothing beats playing professionally. That is my passion. And I've always been very, very clear, like laying down my priority priorities for myself that I am not a YouTuber that plays soccer. I am a professional soccer player that YouTubes. And again, I I put down that and clearly defined those priorities in my head and said, you know, all the, everything that YouTube is, this podcast, everything is a result of me playing pro football. If I neglect that and I don't keep that as my number one priority, everything else is going to go away. My YouTube channel, my podcast, followers, everything. So, you know, I think it's okay to be a YouTuber that plays soccer. And obviously people have amazing YouTube channels better than mine, like the F2 and they are YouTubers. Um, but for me, I need I needed to have that where I am a professional football player that YouTubes. So 
And that's how I view it. And it it makes sense because, I mean, that's what I enjoy the most. I enjoy playing professional football the most, making YouTube videos and everything else second. But number one is hanging out and playing Scrabble with my beautiful fiance. (laughs) She says, you never, she's like, you never play Scrabble with me. Uh, Yeah, I don't like Scrabble. Next uh, question is from NeoCM. And NeoCM asks, how do you find or create your own drills? This is a really, really good question. So I find, I, I recently I've been finding drills on Instagram and social media because now, I mean, you have so many amazing resources. You have Michael Cunningham, you have me, you have Gola Remy, you have even the F2 freestylers will have a drill out there and you have countless professional academy and professional coaches on Instagram putting out quality, quality drills. Like, and I mean, you have Rick Fit and Joner, Joner, uh, lead Joner train one-on-one training and all these amazing resources that just have drill and drill and drill. There's so many resources now, but in the past, before that, there was a time where there was, where Instagram and YouTube were not flooded with drills before that. It was all learning from other people, learning from other coaches. I would go and, and do one-on-one coaching with, uh, with Matt Atencio when I was 12 and he would do an amazing drill. And I just kind of remembered that it stuck in my brain. I'm like, that was a good drill. Um, sometimes I would even, once I got older in like college, when we would do a good drill or I'd see another player like training a player and it was a great drill, I would write it down in a notebook about like, this is a great partner drill that I just learned from my teammate. And as you get older and you train with more people and you do more off-season trainings, you do more partner trainings and you, and you get taught by more coaches, um, you just pick up this plethora of, of drills that you have it in your like arsenal. And even this off-season, I mean, training with Rubio and Christo and Chase and Anthony and all these other pros we would just take turns. Like, I was like, hey, let's do a passing drill. Who's got a good passing drill? And she'd be like, oh, I got one. And then Rubio's like, oh, I got a finishing drill we can do after. So you just kind of start to learn and pick up these drills from other people. I mean, some of my favorite drills that I've been doing recently, like that three goal 1v1 drill, where it's like in the corner of the six yard box, that that was Chase Boone. He, he came up with that drill and we absolutely loved it. Or some of these finishing drills like that Rubio would have us do. Or um, Christo is literally a, a one-on-one trainer. He would have us do these passing drills that I, I loved. So you learn from other people and you kind of just pick that up. And, you know, as you get older and older you and you train with more people, you just get such so many drills like in the back of your head. So, I mean, now I'm, I'm 28. I've been playing soccer for 23 years of my life, 24 years of my life. You, I've had a many, many years to learn drills. Um, and then the next question is from X Max Klep X, uh, but he asks, <clears throat> how much does money affect becoming a pro? Um, I definitely think that unfortunately the more money you have, the, I don't want to say the easier it is to become a pro, but the more opportunities I think open up to you. And that's just how kind of like life works in general, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, if you guys are American, you know that we have a very, uh, we do have a problem with the pay to play system here. I mean, it costs thousands of dollars to play club soccer for a majority of people in the U S and that's just, it's just very difficult. Cause you just, it should be free. And like, if you look at other countries, it is free and there's no reason why it can't be free here. Um, besides the fact that it's just such a huge money grab for, for clubs and everything. Uh, and it's unfortunate. So if you can afford that, I mean, obviously you can afford to play Academy or afford to play ECNL or club or whatever. You now have the access to better coaches, better training versus somebody who cannot afford that. And then as you get older, I think that like, for example, even go to college, a lot of schools can't offer full scholarships. And like for me, I never, I didn't get a full scholarship, but my family came from a place that they could help me out with my school, with the cost of my tuition. Um, especially in the first years and every year you, your, my scholarship increased, increased, increased. Um, but at the beginning, I mean, if I couldn't afford that and let's say I couldn't, I didn't want to take out loans or whatever, that opportunity to play college soccer, I don't know if it would have been there for me. I might've had to drop down to the D2 level or NAIA level in order to get a better deal or a better scholarship offer. So I definitely think it, it money does play a part. And then if we move on to like playing pro or semi-pro, I mean, especially in the early uh, years of my pro career, 
I was making money from soccer that was not even keeping up for my very frugal lifestyle. I mean, I lived on a couch or I lived in a mattress in my friend's kitchen that I flipped up and I paid him a hundred dollars for rent. And the amount of money I was making from soccer at that time barely covered that a hundred dollars of rent. So it's just, it's crazy. But if you can afford to, to keep the dream alive and keep going and keep on pursuing opportunities that come up in Germany to buy a one-way ticket to Germany or I had to buy a round-trip ticket to Iceland. Uh, if you can afford that, then you can continue to go after opportunities. And I've seen many pro players' careers end because they kind of just run out of money and they're like forced to get a real job. They're kind of sick of just, you know, bouncing around and, and asking for money from their parents or working odd-end jobs in order to, to fund the next opportunity to, to go after the next opportunity it's just it sucks but that's just how kind of the world works and i think that the best thing you can do like even that i did as a young age is put away money save money so that you have you know a few thousand dollars up to ten thousand dollars saved up by the time you're like yeah i'm ready to go after it and try to be a pro and go after these opportunities um next question is from maldini a 37 and maldini asks how do you work on defending individually? Uh, I don't work on defending individually. I don't think it's a, a good, uh, a good way to spend time. I mean, if you're out at the field and you have soccer balls and cones and a goal shadow defending, nobody, I don't think is a good way to, to spend your energy or to spend your time. I think that if you're by yourself, work on, your touch, work on your control, work on passing or shooting, or there's so many things that you can work on, work on your actual skills of the game. They're going to translate over there versus just pretending to defend nobody. You know, I mean, you can do agility drills if you want to work on like change of direction and lateral explosiveness, which I think is, would be good, but I don't work on defending when I'm by myself. What I do is when I'm by myself is I work on areas of my game that makes sense to do that. Like I work, I cross into a lacrosse goal. I dribble through cones. I, work, I do ball mastery drills. I do shooting. And then when I'm with a partner, I'm with a small group, then we do one V ones and two V twos. And that's how I work on defending. And then when I'm in my season, you work on defending all the time because you're constantly, constantly playing games and playing training and, and playing small sided. So yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, work on anything defensively and i mean you guys can see my videos what i show in my videos is what i do there's nothing that i do um off camera that i'm like keeping a secret from you guys i show all of my best drills i show all of my best sessions and whenever i don't film i'm pretty much doing the same exact things that i usually do film um next question is from aiden flynn nine and aiden asks how do you oops sorry i'm all zoomed in how do you keep your mindset slash motivation um, uh, I, I've talked a lot about how you shouldn't have to be motivated and how training should be a, uh, uh, something in your day that you just do every day. Like it should just be brushing your teeth. What, do you need motivation to brush your teeth? No, you wake up and you just brush your teeth because it's something you do in order not to have bad breath. And I view training the same exact way. Training is just something I do in order to reach my goal of playing at the highest level I possibly can. And I mean, when I was not a pro, I would train so much and work out so much because I wanted to become a professional football player. I thought there was nothing better in the world than getting paid to play football. So that was my motivation. So every day I just, I viewed it as something I had to do in order to one day become a pro. And now I, I view it as it is my job. I do this every day and I get paid to do this so this, I have to do it. You know, it's just in my head, it was always like, you have to do it. You have to do it. It never was like, I needed motivation to go out and do it. I loved it. And I had very, I was very ambitious and I wanted to achieve those goals so bad that it just became part of my routine that I needed to do. Um, the next question is from Miranda, Miranda Mario and Miranda Mario asks, what makes all the sacrifices that comes with playing professionally worth it? Um, I think, like I said, there's no better job in the world than playing professionally. I mean, it's, it's still surreal to me that I get paid to play professional soccer. It, I get a paycheck twice a month for just doing something that if I, if I 
if I, if it came down to it, I would do for free. And I always, I always joke about this. Don't tell the teams this, don't tell the GM of the club this, but like, you know, if my needs are met, I, I would do anything for free. Like I, I would, it's just insane to me that I get to do this. This is my job. And so what makes all the sacrifices of the injuries and the hard times and the rejections and the uncertainty and the instability of being a pro and all the hard work that went into this is just the fact that I don't have to go to a job that I don't like for 40 hours a week. I don't have to work at a desk. I don't have to do stuff that I see majority of the world doing. I literally make my money from going out and playing my favorite sport in the world with some of the best friends in the world. That's just crazy to me. It, it still blows my mind. So that's what makes all the sacrifices that comes um, with playing professionally worth it. So there is the uh, last question of the Q&A. Mimi, are we still recording on this camera? Okay, we're still recording. Sweet. Um, I hope you guys like this podcast. If you did, please, please, please hit the thumbs up button. It helps out the video so much. Subscribe if you're not subscribed to the Against All Odds podcast. And uh, I'll see you guys in the next podcast, which if everything goes correctly and everything goes smoothly, we'll have the first teammate from FC Tulsa here and we'll be discussing their career. So, all right, guys, I'll catch you in the next, next podcast. Peace. Yeah.